Malaguzzi said, each one of us needs to have curiosity and we need to be able to try something new based on the ideas that we collect from the children as they go along. As life flows with the thoughts of the children, we need to be open, we need to change our ideas, we need to be comfortable with the restless nature of life. This is Sandy Lanes. On this episode, Jen Kesselring, the preschool division head at Riverfield Country Day School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, talks about her school's Reggio-inspired approach from early childhood through high school. She shares beautiful examples of teachers and students tossing the ball back and forth as they partner in research and create cultures of thinking and possibility. And she helps us all become awakened to Reggio. For years, I've known about Riverfield Country Day School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the preschool and lower school are Reggio inspired and have been working with Amelia Gambetti as their guide. What always stayed with me were the photos I saw of their very carefully designed environments and beautiful outdoor spaces. I'm so excited today to get to speak to Jen Kesselring, the preschool division head at Riverfield. The school has many unique aspects to their renowned program, some of which she'll share with us today. Thank you so much, Jen, for joining us. I'm glad to be here. I always like to start by asking people about their journey with the Reggio approach. I think everyone has a very unique way of connecting to it. Could you tell us about yours? So when I graduated from college, I moved out to Washington, D.C., Because my mother had connections out there, she had been working out there, there was somebody that ran a small school and they asked if I would be willing to work there for the summer. And I did. And the summer turned into the fall and the fall turned into the spring and really didn't know. I was a bit of a disaster, really. I was looking for ways to learn more as fast as I could. That is when the Model Early Learning Center was in Washington, D.C. And so I connected with them. The head of Georgetown Hill at that time went over to Reggio Amelia, and I think it was before it was official study groups. And she came back talking about this fantastic place. And so I was inspired and intrigued and found the Model Early Learning Center. And every professional development day that they hosted, I was at. And that's where I met Jennifer Azaridi and started kind of figuring out what the atelier was about. Uh, figuring out the fundamentals, started reading a little bit. Also in that time, Richmond Public Schools hosted the 100 Languages exhibit. And so I went down every Thursday to whatever professional development they were offering and listened to that. And then after about a year and a half of that, I went to Italy for the first time myself. Um, And then my mother-in-law actually got sick Um, and lived here in Oklahoma. And so my husband and I needed to move back here. And I was going to take a couple years off because I had a young daughter and uh, thought I wanted to take some time to just be um, with her, but she was an only child. And so I wanted to make sure that she had a school experience, um, made friends and um, figured all of those very important things out. So I toured Riverfield and they had actually just gone to the exhibit when it was in Oklahoma City. So as I toured looking for my daughter, I saw some of the, you know, some of the elements you tend to see in schools that are inspired. At that time, it was the triangle mirror, the light tables. There were small group centers set up um, and not the traditional centers that you would see, but, but with open-ended materials. And so I started asking them, 
you know, have you heard about the Reggio approach? And they got excited because I knew about the Reggio approach. And so I actually walked out of the school with a job and that was 23 years ago. Now we are Reggio inspired through our middle school and our upper school. So we are one school and it is the fundamental values of the Reggio approach permeate throughout our school. Um, and they're palpable when you walk the halls and it looks a little bit different at different ages. Um, and it's translated a little bit differently because each within a school that large, it's so tied this, this way of being and thinking about education is so tied to identity that each age group has almost their own school tied to their identity while still under the identity of Riverfield, right? And so it's kind of fascinating. It's been fascinating work as I moved through one school to really dig deep into what the identity of each division or section of the school was and make sure that we were tying those fundamentals to that particular identity while still obviously maintaining the identity of Riverfield and honoring those really important fundamental values, the philosophy and beliefs um, that are inherent in living and being this way within education. I, I often get questions about how would this look in older age groups? And could you talk a little bit about those, some of those fundamental values and sort of what it would look like? What is the trajectory of how this could look across ages? As always, I can't answer in a way that says, this is the way you do it. I can answer in a way that says, this is where we are right now and where we've been. And I have no idea, right? I'm sure there are far better ways to do it, but this is where we are. The most permeating factor has to be that strong image of the child and the strong image of the teacher. And the way that translates or has translated for us is a little bit of a shift from the role of the teacher as a disseminator of information to the role of the teacher in facilitating learning. So it shifts a little bit from the focus being in some places, the focus is on the teacher and the teaching. And we have worked very hard to shift for the focus to be on the student, the teacher and the learning. And that doesn't sound like a big shift, but it's, that's a big mindset shift. I often hear people talking about the teacher as facilitator, but I'm wondering if you could maybe take us a little deeper into what that what that could look like. Well, it's, it's very complex. So, um, and it's very, it's complex in different ways for different teachers. It is a mindset and disposition whereby you believe that the student comes and will, comes competent and will gain the knowledge that they need to gain as they need to gain it in context of whatever learning scenario the teacher has created. So it's about, it's that, the observation, where do we have interest and motivation? How do we design a project or an experience uh, or a situation that lends itself to learning um, those, those pieces and broad enough that you can learn that and a thousand other things? Very rich. And then watching, facilit facilitating, meaning asking the questions, finding the materials or proposing with materials inviting a lot of invitation and a lot of, a lot of questioning. I think it really goes down to, instead of the teacher holding all the answers, the teacher understanding what a really good question is, how it can be timed to promote learning. So where, when, and, and why is a really important piece of a teacher as a facilitator. It moves away from 
knowing what you are going to be doing every October 13th, whether you're a biology teacher or a chemistry teacher or a middle school teacher or a language arts teacher in lower school or a preschool teacher, right? You no longer have this set October 13th is this is what happens in, in my classroom. It's no longer my classroom. It's our classroom. And the learning is dynamic and alive. Some of the the things you will be doing will be the same. You know, you will be asking questions. You know, you will be giving feedback and pushing back against any misunderstandings in a way that you are helping the child move through that, that kind of dissonance or cognitive knot to the point of knowledge, but you don't know exactly what that will be around. That being said, you're not throwing out your content, right? So biology, you have to know things about biology, but how you learn when you learn it and why you're learning it and what context tied to what shifts based on wherever that teacher and group of students are and whatever project they've taken on. Could you share for us, maybe we'll start with a preschool project that kind of, you know, really speaks to this idea. And then maybe you could also share with us something on, on the um, older end of. um, So one of the things um, I was, one of the projects I was really excited about this year is we had a group of students who we, like many schools have spent a lot of time outside. We're on 120 acres and we have woods and we have a pond and um, we have all kinds of, you know, and we have a barnyard, we have a goose that thinks he's a goat. So that's always, you know, that's always an interesting conversation. And so we were outside, this group was outside and they became fascinated with the various gardens and flowers on campus and started drawing flowers, representing the different flowers they found, thinking about, you know, what is a flower? What does it do? And some building some theories. And they ended up coming up with a variety of theories of basically flower power, um, but because that's what the children called it, but it's different. Than, it's not 60s flower power, but it is uh, the flower power. And this con- this idea of the role that the sun plays and the birds and the bees play and how it helps a flower grow. And then what the flower gives back out into the universe. So kind of this planetary message piece in order to represent these theories that they were developing, they had worked some with wire, they had worked some with clay as, as you do to kind of both develop and articulate um, through the different media, the, the theories that are being constructed. And this particular group became very fascinated with textiles, the textile studio in the classroom. And so what they ended up doing was creating a fashion line that represented the variety of theories they had around the power, the flower power. Um, and, um, And then we had a fashion show. And so they created a dress that had the flower and the sun and the energy that goes between the two. And they used um, wearable technology to represent some of that. So they were coding the lights and they were. You're talking about four-year-olds. Now, when they were coding, we were using graph paper and colors. So they, they knew that they wanted the colors to go in this order. They wanted these colors and they wanted to go in this order. And so what they did, it was a very clever strategy that one of the four-year-old girls used. She got a piece of graph paper and colored in each square. So she wanted it pink first, then blue, then green, then yellow. So she created a visual of her code 
And then we worked with an upper school student who had gone through the school. So they came over and they worked together to figure out then, you know, when you're coding, yellow always is this, pink is always this. So he, then we created cards that showed that, and then they worked together to type that into the computer in the, in the program. They kind of understood this new language that was a new language. Right. And it, yes, when you say four-year-old, first of all, that goes back to some of the competence, right? You don't think most people wouldn't think, oh, a four-year-old could do this. I think some of the mind shift that happens with a strong image of the teacher and a strong image of the child is this piece around we could if instead of we can't because. That very slight shift makes a very big difference in what is possible. And then if students grow up from the time they're eight weeks to 18, in a, in a culture where we could if right? Knowing that it will be hard work, knowing that, it, that, that there'll be mistakes, knowing that it won't always be easy. Anything really is possible. And they become very grounded in who they are. And when things are too easy, they get kind of agitated <laughs> because they feel like, oh, what are we missing? So anyway, they coded this. We had a terrible time with the coding. We ended up calling people at Fab Labs all over the United States. We never could get the dang thing to really work. And so they problem solved and they went and they got a battery pack light uh, strip because the, the fashion show was coming. And so we have a, a thing we say in the older ages where it's not done, but it's due. So we worked with her to get to a point to where we are going to figure this out. But right now it's time for the fashion show. So these are our choices. Would you like for it not to light up? Would you like for us to try to see if this will work? Would you like to have a, do both have the Arduino, you know, the piece that you've really been working hard on and the light up um, lights. Um, And then we will come back to it. And over the summer, we will figure out, and then we will have a debut of this particular dress. This process, I'm sure took place over a very long period of time. And I'm wondering, I think, some of the trickiest part of thinking in this way is to think about the ball being tossed back and forth. Like where does the teacher come in and sort of offer something that might scaffold to the next place? Or how much of that is the children's thinking? That's the ongoing tension. And, um, and it's a really important one. I think there can be a misconception that when inspired by the Reggio children or or the Reggio approach, the children are in charge. And it's not that the children are in charge. It's not that we're following the children around. We are listening to the children's interests. We are watching, we are observing, we are thinking alongside them. And then the adult has a very important role of many more years of experience, a wide range of resources that the students aren't even aware of, and the questions to move through. When it works well, it is this beautifully um, navigated dance between the children and the the mystery of the universe for them and the adult and their capacity to form really good questions, place them really well, to know the children in a way that they can figure out when they are in cognitive knot and when they are in frustration, because the the point is not to, to keep children in frustration. No learning takes place there but to know that that's when you ask a question that could move them through or lend some knowledge that might move them through. 
But really what it all comes back to is a respectful, invisible and visible dialogue between the adults in the room and the children in the room with a profound and strong relationship between the two, um, as well as a profound and strong relationship with materials and experience and environment. Um, the families play a really important role. That it can be one of the hardest pieces for teachers because it never ends. If you, if every time you listen to a recorded conversation or you analyze a picture or you, or God forbid you videoed yourself and you have to, you know, you have to analyze that, you see things that you would have or perhaps could have or should have done differently. You have to embrace that because that's important in your learning as well as then obviously the child's. There's a fine line. I work with a lot of teachers on that fine line between self-reflection and self-deprecation. So you can't get stuck. You, the self-reflection is there and you must take it and you must use it to move forward, to launch forward in a, a, a profound way with your own learning, but you can't get stuck in it, right? Because you could have, would have, should have a lot of things. That's part of it is keeping yourself in this constant evolution of learning and thinking. One of my favorite quotes um, from Amelia, and I use it all the time, and she says it to me all the time, is when we have thinking teachers working alongside thinking children, we create a culture of thinking. And within a culture of thinking, all of this is possible. It's tied to emotion. It's tied to mystery. It's tied to the magic of childhood, but it's excited about the unexpected. It's, yeah. You have to stay open to the unexpected and you have to stay willing and ready to, to launch and relaunch, but to also stay the course so that you can get the depth that you need. So you're not flitting about. It's a challenging, it's a challenging role. When you talk about the role of the teacher in this way, of being and thinking, it's a, it's a challenging role, but it's a remarkably compelling role that you don't ever die on the vine. You don't ever die on the vine. <laughs> it's so exciting. You're right. You sleep well at night. Yes. yes. <laughs> or, you, or you wake up with a thousand ideas in your mind and write. Well, you do. you do. You keep a bat. You just keep a pad of paper next to the bed. That's just a given. Yeah. <laughs> so let's take it now to an older age group. And maybe could you share some sort of project that, that, you know, represents this way of being as a teacher as well. This happened in the second and third grade classroom. And I love this project. This project makes me smile every time I talk about it. They had begun their year. So in our older, well, everywhere, we have a framework question, an essential question that kind of frames things. As children get older, they, they play a bigger and bigger role in the actual formation of the question so that they're learning what is a good question, why is it a good question? What makes a question beautiful? You know, those kinds of things. In second and third grade, one of the overarching inquiries was around water and the role water has played in civilizations. What this group ended up doing, and it was a group of five second and third grade classrooms, is they designed, well, first they worked with a water lab, but they designed a water space using water tables from the preschool that we had had made out of plexiglass that were large. And then they designed realms that went all around the edge of the water tables and created water wheels, created, created kind of the old aqueducts. How do you get water from the river, which is basically what they had created with the water tables? How do you utilize the water to benefit the realm that you're creating and to benefit the realms around you, right? While still maintaining 
the health of the water system within the water tables. And so there was creative writing because it was, you know, what is your realm? Who lives in your realm? There were magical creatures. We did a lot with uh, boats and what makes boats move. We worked around dams and what is, um, what, what happens within a dam. We worked with hydropower. We worked with water systems. We took field trips to all of the places that would have anything to do with that. They basically built a country or a, a, a realm. But then when you wanted to connect one realm to the other, so there were two groups of really good friends that wanted to be able to visit the other realms, right? So they created a sky ride. But when you cross over two other people's realms, you get into boundary and territory and airspace. So what kinds of agreements do you have to make with the other two realms who airspace you're taking up in order to get to your friend's realm? Also on the water, does the water belong to one realm? Does it belong to all the realms? Can anybody put anything in the water? Can anybody take whatever they want out of the water? So all of these negotiations are taking place, right? So what you've just done is contextualized all of your domains. You've got map because you're measuring and figure scale. There's all, I mean, those second and third graders will never forget scale. You're figuring out um, scale, you're figuring out dimension, you're figuring out the size and the weight of things. And then it gets really meaty. The teacher must be acutely aware of what it is about the knowledge that they want the, the students to have at the end of this, right? What kind of knowledge? Um, what kind of mindsets and dispositions are they trying to facilitate as well? So how you work in a small group, how you communicate, how you work through a problem. Um, what does that collaboration look like? What do you do when you get stuck? How do you get lots of information and then synthesize that and then think critically about what it is you're going to use and what you're not? How do you give and get feedback? The teacher must have all of that in the back of her, his mind, and then as the situation is unfolding, make sure that all of that is happening within each small group, right? And that happens through the documentation process as you're analyzing. And the students are also at this age documenting because they've grown up this way forever. So it's not anything worth, it's not valid unless somebody's taking a picture and talking about it, right? So they, they talk about that through their pictures, right? And then they post those. So that's available to families so that the families stay in the loop around what's happening. And so in the end, there was this giant collection of kingdoms with all of these realms, with all of these treaties that had been made around what can happen when, where, and how, with declarations, with stories about the realm and their origin and what happens. And a movie was written about the, the realm and it was taped. And so there was some stop motion movie. There was some green screen there was some animation. Each creature or key uh, players within the realm were created in the art studio. I mean, this is so beautiful and deep and, and amazing. And I'm, I want to clarify for people that are listening, what part of this was influenced by the children's theories and children's thinking versus the teacher coming with this you know, here's what we're going to be doing this year and here are the ways we're going Great to question. do it. Right. So at the beginning of the year, um, as that we knew that one of the big questions was around water. And that was because at the end of last year, a group of second graders had begun digging in the sandbox outside and creating rivers and waterways. Very typical, right? 
uh, child play. And the teachers had observed that. So we had created a question around water that we could launch from, not knowing that it would be the, the year's question. It was what we were going to launch the year with that we could contextualize all of those beginning of year things, right? How you set up these shared agreements, how you, what do you write about first, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, so and then that every year in second, the second and third grades there, they are talking about water. No, right. No, not as the, not right. as the umbrella. They will talk about water. Right, but right. It might not be the umbrella question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It is an element of their year, but it's not what the question is yeah. created from. Based on observation of the children and what they were really interested in as they kind of messed about with that question at the beginning of the year, we began to design possibilities. So what if, what if, what if, what if, and launch some of those in small ways to see what might take always going back with, hey, we thought about, what do you think? Could we try? What about? And then watching and and observing and figuring out where energy was and where people got really excited. And, and it wouldn't be that 100%, every child was woohoo, right? Every time. But where could we find those nuggets that you could really cultivate together alongside the children? So we knew that it was, again, going back to that dance, a writer's workshop or a version of writer's workshop, not the writer's workshop, but a version of writer's workshop is an element of our, of our day. Tying that back to their interest in the realm, the creative writing that was taking place, individual stories were written. And then those individual stories were brought together to create a collective story. Those collective stories were brought together to create a collective movie. Those kinds of processes happen. The writing had to happen right? The writing was a, was a, we're going to write <laughs> what we write about, how we write about it, why we write about it, right? All shift year to year based on what that kind of collective energy is. Same with, same with math. We know that there are concepts that must be learned in second and third grade. And so we watch carefully and figure out carefully how, could, how many of those could be embedded in experiences that we could create tied to where the children are interested. So there was unbelievable interest when the, after they made the water, after they built the water tables and, and the stands and figured out dimensions of all of that, right? There was great interest as you can imagine around how to float a boat down the, down the stream. And so then there was this boat making frenzy that was going to happen whether we were on board or not, right? That was going to happen. So how could we harness that and learn all of the things that we needed to learn along the way? And then ending with a regatta, right? A boat regatta, both in the, in the tables, but then also out in our Creek that's in the woods, right? So is it different in a water table with a pump than it is in a Creek with the stones and whatever flowing water happens there? So again, going back to that dance between what the children were, go were going to do, you could make really dive deep with making boats, or you could watch them mess about with um, rolled up straw wrappers and aluminum foil, putting it in the water and see what happens. Right. And so you might as well embrace that dig deep and really get into how does one make a vessel? What, how does it go faster? How could you power it in the absence of water? How can you take that power away and still have movement? All of these kinds of questions, right? Which then lent itself very beautifully into the power of water and how that could be harnessed and how that has been harnessed over time 
in different in different countries and different time time areas you know how has that happened throughout history how is that happening now and what does that mean for the future like what are the conversations happening right now about the future of water and what are we worried about does everybody have potable water can everybody float safely down a river do they does everybody go to the lake you know what happens if you live somewhere and there isn't potable water. Yeah, these aren't things we have all the answers to either. No. So really the chil- sometimes the children's theories about this can solve the problems of the world. Exactly. And even if not today, right? If they're thinking about it, then there's an awareness that they're paying attention to in a new way. Without fear, without, you know, not trying to create a burden, but more awareness. And um, and inviting children into the real conversations of the world in an appropriate way that that takes into account their social emotional capacity. It goes back to John Dewey's of um, education isn't for life. Education is life. If education is life and we're trying to break down that barrier between what is happening outside the school walls and what is happening within, then inviting those kinds of questions in becomes very relevant and very imperative, I think, in my opinion. I'm thinking about the distinction between something that's an activity versus Mm -hmm. research. And this feels so much truly like research. So Riverfield has embraced um, school as a place of research. That declaration created a very large shift in the way people think. Right. Because if it is research, then there isn't a whole lot of or there isn't so much uh, dissemination because you, you can't now you disseminate amongst each other. What have you found? What have you found the, the, the role of the teacher to know, hey, you know, I think a few people a while back might have had something to say about this, too. Like they've done some work around this, too. Why don't we see what they knew? But also knowing when, how, why to insert that information. Right. So that you don't give the answers to a question before the children have asked the question, but that you give enough that they have something to work with to create a question. It's tricky. It's very tricky. Well, you said earlier that we really we have to be ready to make mistakes and and be open to that. And I, I think that's what really makes it so dynamic and exciting that we're all living in this together and to know that it's within that. You know, if you are carrying an innovator's mindset, then you look forward to the mistake because in the mistake is the learning. So you're looking for that problem. You're looking for that not. You're looking for that mistake, that thing that doesn't go quite right. And you are confident in your problem solving skills and the problem solving skills of of the people around you. And the beauty of going through school, I was laughing about it just the other day. The beauty of going um, through school in a, a place that thinks and acts in that way is that if you start at eight weeks and you are 18 and you've come back to teach in a preschool classroom for the summer, right? And the children are throwing you cognitive knots left and right because, because you're 18 and you don't, you're like, I'm sorry, what are you doing? That um, you're confident and you're confident in the people around you. There was an 18 year old boy who was working in the preschool. And one of the, the children had asked him a question that he, he wasn't quite sure what to do with. And he said, you know what? I don't know, but my friend Amelia does. Let's go ask her. And so the role modeling that took place there, right? Because it's the same in the classroom. Have you asked a friend? Is there someone that you know that has that kind of skill? Do you? 
And and the the children that come back to teach here um, in the summer, alongside adult teachers, it, it it perpetuates itself. So it becomes a way of life. And so then you launch children into their college careers, sure of who they are, with their skills honed, their their biggest potential, but also recognizing that the person next to them has different skills, different potentials. And what we're really doing is trying to make everybody the very best version of themselves while optimizing on the people around them and the very best version of themselves. This really speaks to the kind of people we want in this world. Yeah. That we need in this world. Yeah. I, I feel like you've taken us really through this incredible way of looking deeper in into creating that culture of thinking that you that you were talking about and that Amelia talks about. I, I'm taking with me, we could if instead of we can't because, and I'm, I'm inspired, not overwhelmed. Yes. I'm, I'm so hoping that all of the listeners today can take that with them. And I thank you so much. You, you gave us so much to think about, and I'm, I'm really excited for people to take this back with them and think about what it means in their own context. Thank Thank you. you so much, Jen. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. If you would like to know more about my wonderful guests or the Reggio approach, please go to my website at sandylanesconsulting.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Hi, listeners. This is Sandy Lanes, the host of Awaken to Reggio podcast. Join me on December 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for my second live webinar, Reawakening to Documentation. I will reveal the value of documentation as a bridge to listening to, analyzing, and reflecting on the thinking of young children and shatter many of its myths and misunderstandings. My hope is to help you find your entry points to documentation in a way that feels accessible effective and inspiring for both you and your children. Using stories from the classroom and teaching from experts in the Reggio approach, I will guide you in seeing your children with new eyes through the lens of documentation and will help you become awakened to Reggio. For more information, go to my website at sandylanesconsulting.com or follow the link on this podcast page. Hope to see you then.